Welcome to Breaking the Mold, exploring the people and issues fueling business today. It's business time. It's business time. It's business. It's business time. And now, let's break the mold. Hello, this is Evan Roth, and welcome to episode number five for Breaking the Mold. Given the unparalleled success of the first four episodes, you can imagine the line that is formed outside the doors here at Breaking the Mold for the ability to co-host the show. It really is of American Idol proportion. So it should come really as as no surprise of my ability to select only the finest co-host here. He is flamboyant. He is an amazing musical talent. He is the tiny dancer, crocodile rocker, <laughs> rocket man, Elton Comic John. Welcome Actually, to the show. that's John Elton. John, John Elton. John, I, I ordered El, Elton John to, to come for the show. I, I, I don't think you want me to be singing or playing piano on this show. <laughs> if yeah. you want to continue to have listeners, let's not go there. I think Elton John is listening to the show right now and thinking, I am glad I'm not on the show and that you have somebody <laughs> who's as accomplished of an investor as John Elton here to to be able to share all of his business insights. So John Elton is here. John, just by way of background, is a, a successful investor in startup companies basically his whole career and now is a partner at the really preeminent venture capital firm. Uh, which was started by Alan Patrikoff. And Alan was one of the pioneers of the industry. He launched AOL, Apple, Office Depot. He founded New York Magazine, and his firm has attracted uh, the best and the brightest to come and, and invest in uh, in startup companies. And just for the sake of my uh, brother-in-law, who's a urologist, uh, venture capital <laughs> is the act of investing in early-stage startup companies. Uh, and so John, John Elton does that for a living. John, thank you. Thanks for having me. We're going to get started here. we got a great show. John's brother is going to be joining uh, us for the uh, interview section. Uh, but first, John and I are going to spend some time talking about uh, risk. It's top of mind uh, if you're tuning into the Olympics and you're watching these insane snowboarders do slope style. The way I sort of learned you know, about risk was in a much more quantitative way. I learned it through Statistics 101 where you know, risk was measured based off of standard deviation or covariance or other things that we had to memorize to be able to graduate from business school. But those are more risk measurements than risk assessments. If you say, look, the water is an average of five feet and it's got some variability around it and you wade into that five-foot water and you happen to be six foot tall, you could still drown. And so the question is, is, is a maybe, you know, a better way to think about risk is you know, the risk is essentially of losing everything. It's a a permanent loss of capital. It's the equivalent of drowning. So for investors, you can look at risk kind of rationally and say, I'm not going to make that investment because I could lose it all. But most investors aren't rational. And if you look at kind of the housing bubble or even the dot-com bubble, the rationale from an investor who's buying a home in 06 or 07 was, well, that's okay. Real estate never goes down or to the extent it goes down that as long as I don't sell it, it'll come back up. And what they weren't taking into account, obviously, is the the risk that an 08 crash could happen. And while the land is still there and the home might still be there, the bank has decided they're going to foreclose on your property and essentially you've lost everything. 
And so people overpaid for homes because they underpriced the, the possibility that they could lose everything. And I think that that's good for my business, John, right, which is that people don't assess risk appropriately. So when things go badly, they panic sell, and that leaves rational investors the ability to pick up the pieces cheap. And I'm wondering, like, in your industry, is it also good in that you need entrepreneurs who misevaluate risk so that they're, whether they're naive, they will go out and, and do dumb things like start a business in a hyper-competitive industry, and without that poor assessment of risk, you'd have a lot of people who are working nine to five and doing things <laughs> that they otherwise should be doing, which is going starting something fresh. I don't think it's a misassessment of risk. I think that in for entrepreneurs, it's more about a life opportunity for them. But I, I think you're right in that there is an element that you have to have this buoyant optimism to kind of take that enormous step to be an entrepreneur. I like to make the joke that great entrepreneurs are similar to bipolar people. The interesting thing about bipolar people is that they don't know when they're really up or really down. Uh-huh. And entrepreneurs are kind of like that. They don't realize that they're being so abundantly positive about something that to most people would seem crazy. And for them, it's a foregone conclusion that, you know, the Internet's going to be successful. Bitcoin's going to, you know, be this global payments, you know, phenomenon. And they jump in with both feet. Hmm. They mortgage their house. They do all these things. And to them, that is, you know, natural. That's a natural course of business, Uh whereas everyone else would think that that is just a crazy thing to do from a risk perspective. That's interesting. So so you essentially wouldn't want to treat a bipolar entrepreneur with medicine <laughs> to make them think differently. You, this is actually an encouraged kind of, you know, you know, state of mind. Yeah, well, they used to say about Steve Jobs that he created this real, reality distortion field, and that's very true. You want the entrepreneurs who have the that buoyancy and excitement that is contagious and uh-huh. it, and it allows them to get the best and brightest to follow them because they're like he he believes it <laughs> like it must be true he's so passionate about it if someone's going to do it you know she's going to be able to overcome all this because she's so positive about it right but it's also something cultish about that too where's the person that kind of raises their hand and and says look, you're in your own bubble, founder. You're not really thinking kind of about what could happen that could actually possibly be a problem. Most people look at venture capitalists as necessary evils, right? That they actually they can't raise the money on their own or they think it might be a means to an end for a much bigger company. But I've actually thought venture provides that sanity check that a founder, a visionary really needs And I don't know whether that's something you sort of can use in a marketing pitch of why a company you want to invest in should actually take your money. But isn't that part of kind of what you do to try to kind of frame a more prudent way of looking at risk than a bipolar visionary entrepreneur would? Certainly from a board perspective, there's an element of devil's advocate. You need to test their assumptions, you know, let them use you as a sounding board so that they're not making obvious mistakes. But it's similar to what all business relationships are. Like when when you have a partner, you want to be able to ask them the tough questions and, ha- and have them be honest with you and truthful. But there is an element of just trust that you have to have with the entrepreneur. You, you also have to jump in with both feet. Mm-hmm. If you're constantly 
sort of a negative presence for them, that that's detrimental. And, and I do see some VCs that take that sort of task with entrepreneurs and it creates a really bad dynamic. Can you look back at your, you know, your career and, and look and say, you know what, there was some, you know, that, that was so off about this one, you know, business that I invested. I should have, you know, had that moment. I look back and I said, you know, I should have forced myself, not just, you know, been a board seat and an encourager, but actually looked at that and said, man, I really should have pushed harder to get them to change their ways because yeah, I knew and they didn't. Yes, certainly you have those moments, and and those are always gut-wrenching. And they all start with the same line, which is you bet on the wrong people. You partnered with the wrong entrepreneur. I, I sleep on investment decisions. I think long and hard. I, I spend the extra time to try and get entrepreneurs. We go out to dinner. We I ask questions about their how they grew up and try to get a level mm-hmm. deeper to understand them. Um, but yeah, you, you end up in these situations where you found out that you bet on the wrong person and and those are very difficult. Um, and, and I've certainly had a few of those. (laughs) Well, we're happy that your brother is not included in one of those. And so (laughs) we will be welcomed here momentarily by John's brother, Ned. We'll be right back. Grow your business by crafting a distinctive audio experience for your established and future clientele produced by the Hangar Studios. Hanger Studios professionally produces audio products including radio shows, podcasts, and audiobooks. Your business will take off with a professional audio production from The Hanger Studios. Be heard. Speak freely. Find us at thehangerstudios.com. You're listening to Breaking the Mold. You can follow us on Twitter at BTM Show, or you can email us at btmshow at icloud.com. Now, more of Breaking the Mold. Thank you, and welcome back to Breaking the Mold. We are now to our interview section of the show, and we are quite fortunate to have brothers here in the studio. As most of our listeners know, we are big fans of brothers having started as a show about brothers. We've always loved the the Flying Karamazov brothers. We read the <laughs> Brothers Karamazov after hearing about the Flying Flying Karamazov brothers because they were the original. And this is a really special treat for us to be able to have Ned and John here together to talk about their experiences. You've met John. Let me kind of give a, a brief background on Ned. Ned is a Princeton grad, a, a Northwestern Kellogg MBA, went the marketing track after business school, uh, worked at Procter & Gamble as a global brand manager. Life in the big company uh, influenced him to leave that immediately and go through a series of very successful startup businesses and is now at a, a firm um, called Rosetta, and he's been there for the last 13 years. Even Rosetta has now had a, a very successful um, successful exit to the tune of, of over $500 million in the, in the sale of Rosetta. So it's one of those wonderful success stories. And as much as we're going to talk about that with John and Ned, let's kind of start back in the, the beginning and kind of walk our listeners through what, what it was like growing up in the Elton household. Well, I guess the interesting thing, and, and I'll, I'll relate one of it back to Rex. My, my father is a finance professor. He wrote Modern Portfolio Theory. We grew up in a, uh, in a family that was very analytical, very focused on education. Um, and, and my brother and I are seven years apart. So he was always sort of an idol for me and someone I looked up to very much. He went off to college when I was fairly young. He went to Princeton. 
He be, he was the uh, uh, captain of the football team. He you know did very well. And when he graduated, he went to Wall Street, you know, was on Wall Street where, you know, a lot of smart kids kind of ended up around where we grew up and ended up going to Kellogg, which was the number one business school at the time, went into marketing, went went to the number one marketing company. There's a lot of number there, ones. There are a lot of number ones. And were you were you like Avis? Um, <laughs> you know what I you know what I say? I <laughs> that's probably true. I remember like my first day of, of high school, I went to like my honors English class and 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 the professor goes, "You know, your sister was my best student I have ever had in my 25 years of teaching." <laughs> Literally, this is exactly He stopped the class to explain this. He's like she'd write upside down and hand in these like things last minute, and then I'd read them and they were genius. And then, like, I go to the gym class and, like, you know, my brother's, like, awards are on the wall. And, you know, it's just like – so I had – you know, I saw these these footsteps and they were very large mm-hmm. footsteps in the path. And it was great for me. It was great to have, you know, role models as my brothers and sisters. But at some point I did have to kind of step out of those yeah. just to have my own space. Yeah. And, and Ned, so you, you created the fresh set of tracks in the snow, right? Yeah. And – as an older sibling, did you appreciate that there were those who were going to follow your family, your brothers and sisters, who were going to follow in those tracks and you made decisions thinking about, is this the right message to send to them, knowing you're the role model? I'd like to say the answer is yes, but probably not, you know, mm-hmm. in all candor. I think, I mean, I think that, that you know, um, you know, our, our parents raised us to be conscientious and achievement-oriented. And I think I was very aware of the fact that there was an example that I was setting, um, and and but it was really about living up to expectations that the family set, as opposed to uh, something that I felt was sort of a per- personal ethic. So, um, but no, I think I think from uh, I think you know the 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 nice part as we've gotten older actually is that while we're still separated by seven years, um, you know John really has taken a different path, and we're much more at sort of the peer level today than and we have a, a relationship today that's much more about our own sort of different experiences and how he's gotten to where he's gotten and and how I've gotten to where I've gotten and mm-hmm. we have the ability to really have uh, more of a you know peer to peer relationship than it was back in back in those days mm-hmm. it, it, and it's that, that back to the risks kind of conversation you've each you know, taking a lot of risk in your own careers. From my perspective, one of the things I think that was, and I don't know if it was because of the way we were raised or because of just uh, who I am as a person, but you know, I think early on, um, you know, I came out of school, as John said, I worked on Wall Street, really fascinating work, um, very high-paced, very competitive, but there was something inside me that said it wasn't really the right path for me going forward. Um, and you know, well, there's a lot of great pictures you could draw about a career in Wall Street. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew it was wrong for me. And that little sort of you know, voice in my head was really what made me go back to business school, which in the grand scheme of things probably isn't a risky proposition because I did go to a good school right. and, you know, I was trying to minimize risk in the decision that I made. Mm-hmm. But the actual going back to school was um, uh, was a risk. I remember sitting down with, with my boss in the firm that I was with out of college and him telling me not to go back to business school. He said, it's a waste of time. You shouldn't do it. He said, um, you know, you can be very successful here. You can have a fantastic career. But there was something inside me that said, this isn't really what I wanted to do. Um, and so despite that advice, I, I said, I got to take a different path for myself. 
So I think there is an inner voice that we all have. And if we can listen to that and try to overcome some of the uh, inertia that we all feel in having a job, having a paycheck, living in a place that, you know, where I get, you know, shelter and the rest, you find that you can um, set yourself on a different path that leads you to an end that ultimately is more satisfying. Where did that inner voice come from for you guys, though? It's, you, you don't, your, your parents weren't role models. I mean, analytic, intellectual professors, tenure. I mean, you couldn't ask for less yeah. you know, career Well, well I just, I mean, just to kind of go back to my dad, my dad grew up in a, in a small town in Wisconsin. He went to a one-room schoolhouse till he was in high school, um, and he's ended up living in the New York metro area, moving to New York as a tenured professor at one of the top business schools. It was a risk for him to not do what everyone else in his class did um, back then uh, and stay local, um, do what the local folks did. He took the risk. Um, and even growing up, John was born in Germany, and that was because my dad into, I guess, seven or eight years into his career, made the decision to uproot us at the time, me and my uh, two sisters, move us all to Germany mm. while my mom was pregnant um, and spend two years mm. in Germany in 1972 when things weren't exactly rosy in, 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 in Germany at that point. So I think, you know, at some level, that kind of belief that it's all going to work out for the best Yeah. Is um, is part is linked to back to what I said. It's it's this belief that if you rely on yourself, if you rely on on what made you successful, um, you can expose yourself to places where you feel less comfortable, and get more out of it as a result. Hmm. The other thing I'd add to that was just um, a, a doggedness of being successful. I think what I saw from my older brothers and sisters and my father was just incredibly hard workers. So, I mean, my father stopped working Saturdays fairly recently, and he's in his 70s. Um, and I think that work ethic has carried through my family and made us successful um, despite taking, you know, big risks and doing other things that, um, you know, didn't always work out is we just all stuck with it and worked hard. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know that any of us are the smartest people in our fields, but we certainly work hard and keep at it. And, you know, I, I, you know, Einstein has a great saying is, I, I'm not the smartest person out there, but I just stay with problems longer. And I think that's something in our family. We, we all stay with the problems longer, work through them, keep at it and mm -hmm. try and be successful. It's funny. It's, it's, it, that is definitely the theme of a lot of research that's being done right now in education, right? That the role that resilience and grit plays in defining people and making the their life path that much m more you know successful because nobody's path is free of you know trouble and problems yeah in in my field in venture capital and startups and entrepreneurship you know i look at silicon valley as a great example silicon valley the, the real one of the big learnings for me is their ability to take enormous risk and that has become a global phenomenon, and, and you see it, especially with young people, a lot more startup activity, what have you. And part of it is that they embrace risk in a, you know, obviously, you know, financial standpoint, but it's also a reputational thing. I mean, if you're doing a startup and it fails in the valley, it's, it's sort of a mark of achievement, mm -hmm. whereas in a lot of countries, it's still, if you fail, the cost of failure is no one will ever want to hire you again. And, and New York is, it, it's still evolving, um, 
but it's coming there. It, it, people understand that you know people have taken risks, and you know just because something didn't work out doesn't mean it was their fault necessarily. You can fail in a low risk enterprise as well, right? That not to m- mask that failure only comes because well, I took a risky bet. How do you differentiate maybe in your own life and in the businesses that you funded in terms of people who actually are can be successful, right, because they're taking the right kinds of risks and they're not going to fail as operators because that was the problem was them, not necessarily the business? I would say that's one of the harder things to ascertain. You know, even outside of startups, you look at companies that are not performing well and and you say, is that because – it's 2008, and, and actually the, the manager is doing a phenomenal job managing through a crisis, or are they part of the problem and part of the crisis is them? I think it's interesting, though, because you know, our business now is much bigger than when I started. It was 19 people. Now we're 1,100 people. We're part of Publicist. We're part of a much bigger organization now. But risk still plays a really important part in everyday decisions, and even in situations where um, – it's really about how you grow your business, hit, hit your numbers in this given year. The risks become things like, should we open up an office in, in the UK? Um, should we hire 15 more people before we have the revenue to support it? So you're constantly trying to manage through those things. And while certainly there's, there's a different risk profile in the venture world, I think the skills to be successful in that kind of environment of risk are still the same. Mm-hmm. And you have to be able to understand how to take a risk and how to take it appropriately. I think that the real challenge is when you don't take risks and you start to freeze up. And I see that in some bigger companies where they take so much time to, to make a choice that the market starts to lap them. And we work with lots of really big clients. And it's pretty consistent that the hardest thing they can do is change. They've been really successful in some cases for 80 years, but they don't know how to adapt. And all they are now is a really big entity that is doing the same thing they did 30 years ago. Right. When, how do you look at it, uh, risk in your own career? Well, I would say, I mean, for me personally, um, there, there's, a, uh, there's an excitement in being part of making, being part of a, of a situation that has less defined boundaries. And I know I've always been more comfortable in that environment. So outside of some experience in working at big places um, like Procter & Gamble, uh, I've always been, been sort of more ener- personally energized by situations that were uh, less well-defined, whether it was a startup situation or whether it was a small company looking to grow aggressively. Um, even at P&G, I worked a lot in the new product space. I worked on um, – I was one of the first people involved in kind of blowing out the, the proposition for P&G in the digital space going back 15 years ago. Um, so I think it was always part of kind of who I was, and I had to recognize that that's what kind of get me got me going, wanted me to go to work in the morning. Um, the other piece of it is I think is that, that – you have to um, learn how to how to take challenges and, and be confident in yourself. And I had someone that told me a long time ago that, that you got to bet on yourself. If you look at all the different things that could go wrong, bet on yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Bet on what made you successful. Uh, and I know in business school, uh, I'd come out of uh, two business school having worked on Wall Street, got lots of attention from Wall Street firms. Um, but that's the thing I had left, didn't want to go back to. And I had three offers from three New York investment banks and turned them all down um, and was left with, with trying to get an, an opportunity in marketing, which is really what I wanted to do. And none of the marketing companies wanted to put me on the list of 12 people that were going to interview based on my background. My only option was to, to roll the dice. And I did that by signing up to be 
the interviewee in a mock interview by the head of recruiting for Procter & Gamble. So my first interview in marketing was in front of 250 of my fellow classmates at Northwestern, where I was being interviewed by the head of recruiting for P&G. And the goal and the, the benefit of that was when I went through that process, I got to get an interview with Procter & Gamble for a full-time position. Mm -hmm. So uh, looking back, I think I felt good about it at the time. I probably totally flubbed the interview because I had no <laughs> idea what I was talking about. But the reality is it kind of set me off into a different path. And I had to take the risk of embarrassing myself in front of 250 people if I wanted to make give, give myself the opportunity to take advantage of, of getting a, an interview. Mm -hmm. And it worked out okay in the end. Mm -hmm. you, everything we've talked about right now is, you know, it's, it's storybook, right? It's, it's almost fairy taleish, right? It's, it's always worked out. Um, but I know that hasn't always been the case. And in, 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 in particular, for both of you, in things that you can't control, you are clearly, you know, driven, whatever you put your mind to, you can, you can do. But you've had a health issue that were things that were completely out of your control. Talk a little bit about that. You know, this is probably, I guess I was in my early 30s. Um, and when I got the job at Procter & Gamble, one of the things they do is drug test you. Uh, and I remember getting the phone call from the the, the uh, nurse's office that I they had to come in and talk about my results. Uh -huh. which, what were you really which, thinking at yeah, that moment? Yeah, so, <laughs> so I was fairly confident. I was worried I'd had a poppy seed muffin one morning. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, amazing how things but, pop up. But, uh, <laughs> exactly. But I went down and they basically showed my results and said, you have some elevated uh, protein in your urine, and, and it, it suggested there's probably something happening with your kidney. So, you know, I was, again, kind of, you know, young enough and, and confident enough and physically able enough that I sort of dismissed it like, I can't be that big of a deal. Uh, but over the next few months, it got to the point where I would go out and I'd try to go running, and I found myself running two blocks and, and being winded and just not not feeling the same. So I went, I went to a doctor, and, and essentially um, I got a, a sort of an initial diagnosis that I had some issues with my kidney that could progress to kidney failure. Um, and again, I kind of ignored that, assuming that, you know, everything's going to work out for the best, when in fact there was something that was beyond my control. Mm -hmm. And within about 18 months, um, I started feeling really, really bad um, and ended up going to an emergency room where uh, I was sitting in a room with a guy who had a stab wound, uh, a guy with a broken leg, um, and they took my blood pressure and immediately they wheeled me in and left the oh, the gun the, the the stabbing you the know stabbing you're in trouble you know, yeah. when yeah. it's yeah. serious when you take precedence <laughs> exactly. over the guy bleeding out of his yeah. heart. Uh -huh. So I was I was somewhat clueless um, at that stage about kind of the reality of what it was, and I, I and I you know after about two weeks in the hospital I got the message that that you're going to need a kidney transplant. Um, and it's still at that point, I think I don't, it didn't really sink in. I literally had, I had a skiing vacation planned for the day that I was going to go have my first kidney transplant. <laughs> and I think it was because I didn't, I didn't, I hadn't sort of really rationalized the fact that this was really <laughs> happening to a me. A high degree <laughs> of denial going on. This is so right dead, there. by the way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I remember arguing with my surgeon saying, well, can I push it back a week? Cause I'm planning on going skiing. <laughs> and, and he said, he said, well, this is more serious than I think than I think you're realizing it is. So so um, that that I think that that sort of that that was my entree into really realizing that some of the sort of foundational things that um, uh, I had sort of assumed were going to be the reality of my life. Because um, you know, as as much success as I feel like I had at that point, a lot of it was because I had opportunity. I was lucky to be grown up in a place where I had great teachers and great parents. And yeah, I had challenges, but I had lots of opportunity. So mm -hmm. I was taking advantage of opportunity. This was the first time where 
I was really something was thrown in front of me that really kind of rocked me to the core. Um, and then with within about uh, two years of that, that I had a kidney transplant. My father was the the first uh, recipient. Uh, or donor, donor, rather. <laughs> donor, sorry. Um, and, uh, Probably don't need more um, than two. <laughs> yeah. Within, within about three years from that, I actually found out that that kidney was failing. Um, and I got to a point where uh, I was living at home with my parents. Um, my kidney was failing. Uh, I had gone from my normally robust size to weighing about 130 pounds. Um, I, uh, I had a, a relationship that broke up. And I was sort of at the bottom of pretty much every, every any in bottom as any, I couldn't even imagine sort of being in that situation at that point in my life. But, but I think, you know, it, it was something that, uh, uh, you know, in hindsight, um, I was able to, to, to come back from. Um, and again, kind of go, leaning on some of the, the advice I got in the past around the way you'll be successful in the future is the same way you were successful in the past. I didn't say that very well. Uh, <laughs> but got it. it wasn't my we quote. It. it wasn't my <laughs> quote. Uh, but, and, and really it was about trying to overcome that. Um, but, you know, that period of my life, which is about a five-year period, um, I think really did fundamentally shape how I thought about my career and my life going forward from there. Yeah, there's just a vulnerability, a mortality that it felt like you didn't face that most people in their 30s don't need to face for many, many more years after that. Yeah. Well, the irony is, is that um, I reject that. I reject their vulnerability. But in the, from the standpoint that it can guide your life, I think it can be all consuming. Mm-hmm. If I spend the, if I sit there and think about the reality of the fact that, um, you know, uh, I've got two young kids, I'm married, I have lots of responsibilities, and I have what amounts to a fairly serious kind of medical condition, it would be very hard for me to think about decisions and how to, how to move forward. I think you have to remove that kind of the fear of the deep. You know, when you go scuba diving and look off into the deep, you've got to stop looking at that. You've got to look what's in front of you. Um, and there's a danger in kind of getting lost in the deep mm-hmm. and missing what's right in front of you. So I think as, as a, you know, my philosophy has been actually, and even from a risk perspective, is you've got to focus on what you can manage and what you can control and not worry about the other things because if if that does come back around, you'll have to deal with it just like you dealt with it last time. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, John, from your standpoint, <clears throat> being the the donor of the successful kidney, um, <laughs> yes, this does work out. <laughs> yes, it does. Yeah, in the we, end, yeah, we're all we're all here is. Uh, yeah. By the way, Ned just fell over. <laughs> <laughs> it was from the other kidney, it wasn't yeah, yours? It was, yeah. Uh-uh. I'm gonna actually get mine out. Yeah. How did that? What was that like? Your brother yeah, turning mean, it, to you and saying, I, Ned, "I need a vital organ." You know, Ned's being sort of polite about it. You know, when but it, it was true he, when he told me we were literally playing basketball. <laughs> you know, like my brother was really sick and we're playing basketball, and he's and and he's sort of like, you know, we're about to play, and he's like, eh, "I'm not feeling great, so let's take it easy," kind of thing. And meanwhile, my brother and I used to play basketball like. It was a death cage match, <laughs> and every point was fought over. Like I have broken limbs from playing, and and he comes out and asks asks for forgiveness immediately, and I'm like, okay, something is really wrong. Yeah, and and he said, you know, I've I've been diagnosed with end stage renal disease, and I'm gonna need a kidney. And for me, it was one of like my pillars crumbling because you know my brother is this golden child, incredibly successful guy. I mean, he's six two, two twenty, football player, you know, and and you know, all through my life, 
you know, people are, you know, admiring him. My parents love him. He's doing really successful. And then for him to have this really serious disease um, was really shocking to me and really difficult for me to deal with. But I also saw what Ned was talking about was it was very difficult for him to understand. And just the fact that he's like out playing basketball when, you know, mm-hmm. he's, you know, soon going to give a kidney. But I think the overall experience was one that very much changed my perspective on risk taking and put an immediacy to wanting to accomplish the things that were important to me in life. Um, and I think the other good benefit was it, it, it did bring my brother and I a lot closer together. It, it did, but it, the roles were reversed, right? The way you describe your relationship growing up, it was clear who was the alpha male in the home, right? <laughs> and now you're— It's still true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's back to your denial, yeah, right? right? Which is that you've got yeah. a kidney, yeah. a healthy weigh, one. I don't weigh 130 pounds anymore. <laughs> yeah. Did that—I mean, did that change things for you? And forget just even—or maybe in addition to your relationship with your brother, but kind of how you thought about yourself and kind of, it, you know, I, decisions it, you it made. It did for me. I mean, I, I mean, I just—I know the question wasn't to me, but I, I think it did for me— yeah. Because, um, I mean, there was a lot of personal stuff around kind of my own humility and that kind of stuff, lessons that you learn. But I think also it was a time, um, again, where the first time sort of as an adult, mm-hmm. uh, as both of us as adults, uh, we, we were both sort of in this situation. And uh, so I think, I think it, it, it shifted the, the relationship pretty dramatically, relatively quickly. I mean, I'll, I'm his older brother. I always will be. Some of that stuff never goes away. Um, but no, I think it did fundamentally kind of shift the relationship and, um, and, and, you know, made me, made me grateful, but I think it also just made me sort of look, look at him differently. And I think you asked the question up front that I, did I do all these things with the, the desire to leave a legacy and footprints? Mm -hmm. The reality is no, I didn't because I was focused on my own things as a 22 year old kid or whatever it was. But, um, I think it made me kind of open space to, to be, to be his brother and, and more of a, you know, a a true brotherly way as opposed to the older brotherly way. Yeah. And, you know, for me, I think um, it did, it did change our, I think his, his life sort of went on, on a pause for this period. You know, things were happening, but it was, it was such a central thing, his illness, that it impacted everything. And for me, um, it was a it was an enormous decision to give a kidney. You go through this natural initial thing. You know, I'm sure when he asked me, I was like, "Of course, I'm going to give it to you." Like it's a lightning decision. You're my brother. Um, but the reality was, you know, again, my brother's you know being polite about it, but he was incredibly sick. He he, I thought you know one day he he was put in the hospital, and I was literally arguing with the doctors to admit him. They put him out. On you know, they sent him home, and I'm like, listen, I know my brother. He is going to die if you go home. If he goes home, and 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 don't don't bother waiting for the test results. That's how it is. And they didn't listen to me, and I was arguing with him, arguing with him. And I was literally arguing with him for 45 minutes. And during the time I was arguing with him, the people who got the results in the back, and they they immediately called him and my mother, who was out in the car with him. And like sent a, sent them out to get him, mm-hmm. and like pulled him out of the car, 
Um, and we're like, your test results are you like, you need set dialysis the second they're, tor- they're horrible. Um, so he was so sick and he was, and he'd gone through, uh, one kidney donation failure, you know, only like a year before that. So from, and I just got married, you know, my life was progressing while his was kind of falling apart and it, and um, so it became a really big decision for me um, because, you know, if, if it was only buying him 12 months and it was a big risk, um, you know, it was, a, it was a tougher decision for me. And, and the beauty of it was like once I gave him the kidney, you know, I remember strolling into his room and, and he'd been so sick for so long. And, and it was like the next day after I gave it his kitty and he's like chatting and cheery. And I was like, how are you feeling? This? <laughs> and I come in and I'm just like dragging my IV with me. I've got like my morphine clicker. I'm like clicking it, clicking it, clicking it. And, and so it was just like immediately like gratification as soon as it happened. And, you know, since I donated the kidney, um, you know, my brother's gotten married. Um, he has two children you know, his company that he was at during this period, um, he went back to, stuck with it, and the company was acquired for $575 million. Um, you know, company he joined was one of the first 20 people. So it's, you know, it's been this fairy tale thing, but you're right, it was an incredibly difficult period, and it and it really changed how I, I looked at life. And the, the good thing for me, aside from obviously what's happened with my brother, is it's allowed me to kind of have the freedom to just be like, all right, I'm if I want to do something big, now's the time to do it, and I've I've sort of adopted that philosophy. This might be a, a unfair question, and it's a hypothetical, but do you think that you, because of your experience, both of your experiences, that you are more successful professionally, personally, than someone who hasn't had to overcome something so traumatic? I mean, I, I would say, yeah. I mean, I, I look at the experience actually as a blessing um, because I think it forced me to realize about things about myself, about my relationships, about, um, you know, what I wanted out of life, uh, that uh, it, it it really has sort of shifted. It made me a better person in the end, um, and it maybe accelerated whatever natural maturation process I was going through. Um, but I, I, I do think so. I think I mean, I think it, it's given me the ability— or the, the perspective that when I think about work, um, you know, I, I played football in college and, you know, it was, you know, playing football in college, you should go out there, you do things on the field that you could never naturally do to a person on the street. But then you come off the field and, and you know, you shake hands afterwards and you kind of get back to being a normal human being again. And I kind of, th- that, that perspective for me um, was important, I think, in the business world too, where you can get out and you can be passionate, you can be competitive, you can be dedicated. But then when it's over, you got to kind of go back to the things that matter in life too. And and if and I think before that, I think uh, th- that line between the two was a little fuzzier for me. Mm. Um, so I think it made me kind of recognize that I needed to find that balance. And um, in doing so, I think it helped me um, have a different just perspective on a day-to-day basis in terms of how I approach things. Mm. You too, John. Yeah, I, I absolutely. Um, you know, I was reading a book um, recently, and um, this is gonna <laughs> try and remember the. Uh, it's the the famous um, Dilbert. Uh, Dilbert? Ca- no, the Cam- <laughs> the, the Cambridge uh, physicist. Um, Hawkins, Stephen Hawkins. Thank you, uh-huh. Stephen Hawkins' book, and he talked about. There's how- no physics allowed in breaking the mold. This is a business <laughs> podcast. 
it, it, it's very relevant to this, so forgive me. But he talks about how he was so bright that he basically didn't have to study. Uh-huh. And, and it was kind of the cool thing was to not study. And then he got diagnosed with this disease. And all of a sudden, he didn't think he had much time to live. And, and it allowed him to just dismiss all this sort of frivolous, like be, trying to be the cool kid and prove everyone how smart you are by not studying and be like, okay, if I, I, I have the ability to be, I'm so smart, I have the ability to actually do research and change the way people think about physics. So he actually started applying himself. And, you know, I, I'm not, not that I wasn't applying myself before, but, you know, I recently I, I changed jobs. I was a managing partner at the top VC in Canada. I loved my partners. I had a lot of success there. And I left that, which is basically permanent employment, to join Graycroft, which is another great firm that fulfilled a lot of the things that I wanted to accomplish. And most people would look at that and say, you know, you left permanent employment in a place that you love with, with you know, people you really enjoyed working with that you were really successful at, like you're crazy. Hmm. And and it, it was an enormous risk. Um, and I'm, 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 you know, Five months into it. <laughs> so far, so good. So, you know, episode 20 will be, you know, how to recover. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. He, he just wanted to be closer to me. But now I, I had a, a calculus teacher in high school that said something to me that at the time, you know, I was sort of, you know, I was a smart enough kid that I could do enough and get by and get good grades. And, you know, um, uh, his name was actually Microphone. Believe it or not, microphone, <laughs> Mr. Graphone, and, and his daughter's name is Meg. Megaphone, yeah, yeah, Ooh. yeah. yeah. That's I don't, I don't, a parents with a sense of humor. Yeah, gotta love that, that. That might be an urban myth, but uh, <laughs> but it does sound good. Go with it. But but I remember, and I think it was probably in a day where I, you know, I'd obviously not maybe prepared for class, and he told me he said, you know, the, the really successful people in life are the ones who have to really work hard to overcome challenges. It's not the ones who just sort of have it easy. And uh, that that stayed in my head. I don't know that I really reacted to it forever, but um, it stuck in my head. And I kind of to your point earlier about self determination is that you know when you think about risk, you got to bet on yourself, and you got to be able to be um, understand that you have confidence in working through challenge, and that um, that that with risk comes opportunity. And if you can um, you know rely on on your your work ethic, rely on bringing the right people together to um, to to work with you. Um, that's how you sort of minimize the risk and the variance that exists in the marketplace. Hmm. Great lesson. Um, it's sort of a question, which is, you know, you don't necessarily look for challenges, right? You look to mitigate challenges, right? You, it doesn't mean you take the easy route, but all else being equal, if you can make a buck doing it with the least amount of time, you'll take that option. But both of your inspirations for if that challenge happened to come up, you face it head on, you tackle it, you learn from it, you grow from it, and maybe you're even better people from it. I think it's great. So for Ned and John, uh, this is Evan Roth, and thank you for tuning in to our interview section. We'll be right back for the final part of Breaking the Mold. Breaking the Mold wants your feedback please visit our iTunes show page and tell us what you think about the show. Now, back to your hosts. And we're back with Breaking the Mold. That was an insightful, thoughtful discussion with John and Ned Elton. 
certainly took a turn that's unusual here on Breaking the Mold, where we really got into some fascinating both you know, relationship issues between brothers, career issues, decisions that were made, not made as a result of the organ transplant, the organ donation. And wanted to just kind of wrap up on final thoughts on risk. The discussion with John and Ned was a lot about the ways in which sort of they each internalized kind of their career moves. But when I really think about risk, it's not just based off of kind of the absolute level of risk. It's really on a relative basis, back to kind of what we discussed in the opening, which is, you know, your chances of losing everything, a permanent loss. But if you have not much to lose, then is it really as risky, right? The, the idea of forced entrepreneurship. So in this uh, most recent recession, the amount of layoffs were quite extreme. And because firms weren't rehiring, you saw a lot of movement from people who needed to reestablish an income quickly but couldn't get jobs in order to be able to do that. They started their own business. So the ranks of entrepreneurs went up pretty significantly in the 2009, 2010, 2011 period. And the question is, is that just because suddenly, kind of post-recession, everybody had this wave of desire to take risk to recoup what they lost? But I really believe it was more because there was nothing else, no other opportunities. And because of that, is that really considered risk-taking behavior? Um, and if you think about that kind of, you know, in relation to John and Ned's, you know, experience, Right? You had John, who had a very good job, who was the top of his field in a firm that would have been you know, something that people aspired to be able to work for, who voluntarily gave up his role after making the organ donation to his brother as a result of kind of the change in mindset that he went through, which was, I am not going to be in any job where I am not at my highest excitement, intentional, the idea that life is short. And no matter how wonderful that job opportunity is, if that wasn't his lifelong passion, he wanted to take the opportunity to go to, the, to, to Graycroft, which is where he is now. And if you think about that change, that means that he had a lot to lose, right? This was a voluntary decision to go to a different direction. And if there hadn't been this situation where he saw, you know, what his brother went through and the exchanges, physical, mental, went through through his own, the question would be, would he really have made that change? So in, in my mind, John made an incredibly risky move to change to, you know, in, into Graycroft. And, and if you then compare it to kind of how Ned went through kind of his transition, one unsuccessful kidney failure, lots of personal problems during that time, and then receiving John's kidney he recovered and then chose to go back to the firm that he was at before he was sick. Now, granted, there were other factors here beyond just, you know, not wanting to take a risk and go find something else. Uh, the, the factors were that it was as one of the first employees at a company that eventually ended up being sold for, you know, more than $500 million, gave him the, the confidence this, was, this maybe was his calling. This was the true aspiration that he had from a, from a career standpoint, so why would he make a change? But on its surface, if you thought, who was the one to take more risk in their life? The one that saw Grim Reaper facing them in their face like Nick 
head or John, who was simply just there to be able to support his, as he called his idol, you know, somebody who he really had looked at as a role model for all these years. You would have guessed it was it was going to be Ned more than it was John, but, but so far it, it really appears that John is the one who was more changed in that transition. So we will uh, see you again in two weeks uh, where we'll pick back up the show. Thank you for tuning in. Don't forget to email us any thoughts at all. BTM Show at iCloud.com or follow us on Twitter at BTM Show. This is Evan Roth. It's business. It's business time. been listening to Breaking the Mold. Let us know what you think of the show via Twitter at BTM Show, through email at btmshow at icloud.com, and at our iTunes show page. Breaking the Mold is recorded at the Hangar Studios in New York City.